1: I beg your pardon? Hello and welcome to this Kermode on Film podcast. Thanks so much for downloading. On this week's show, we've got a real mixed bag for you. Coming up, I'll be walking the streets of Belfast with composer, producer, director, DJ and all-round legend David Holmes. We'll be visiting some of the sites that inspired the brilliant film Good Vibrations, one of my favourite films of recent years. Then you can hear the full-length interview with filmmaker Desiree Akhavan that we teased in episode one of this podcast. Desiree Akavan is the writer and director of The Miseducation of Cameron Post, and her new series, The Bisexual, is on the streaming service, All 4 Now. She came on the Mark Kermode Live in 3D show that I do at the South Bank a few months ago, and you can hear that full interview. But we start with what's going to become a regular feature, Hell's Video Store, in which I revisit some of the worst movies ever made so that you don't have to. So, welcome to Hell's Video Store, an endless repository of stinky celluloid. Now, to get things rolling with this first installment of Hell's Video Store, I thought I'd choose something that is really archetypally terrible. So, my choice this month is one of the very worst films ever made. And no, I'm not referring to John Borman's Exorcist II: The Heretic, which, as you know, is the worst film ever made. Instead, I'm referring to Exorcist The Beginning, a third, or perhaps fourth, sequel to The Exorcist, which is arguably the second worst movie ever made.
0: Mother, what's
2: wrong with
1: me? What an excellent day for an exorcism. Now, the story of the creation of Exorcist The Beginning is one of pure hell, involving the death of one director, the firing of another, the departure of a leading man, much unholy mudslinging, and a catastrophic production history which saw this disastrous miscalculation made not once, but twice. Both times terribly. The cursed history of exorcist sequels dates right back to 1977 when John Borman's Exorcist to The Heretic, about which I promise you we will talk in more detail in a future episode, was jeered off screen by audiences, destroyed by critics and described by exorcist director William Friedkin as the product of a demented mind. So imagine my surprise when new Exorcist franchise owners Morgan Creek announced that they were returning to the inspirational subject matter of The Heretic for their proposed new prequel, about Father Lancaster Merrin's previous encounter with the demon Pazuzu in Africa. Father Merrin. you know my name? Now, a little bit of background. In Blatty's original 1971 novel, it stated in passing that Father Merrin had performed an exorcism 10 or 12 years ago in Africa, which damn near killed him. The Heretic transposed this exorcism to the 30s, where a youthful Merrin, played by the original star Max von Sydow, who was covered in ageing makeup in The Exorcist, saves a young boy from the grip of Pazuzu in Ethiopia. You keeping up with this? Okay, great because for the Exorcist prequel, Merrin's formative encounter with evil would be moved again to Kenya in 1947, where he discovers a Pazuzu-esque statue in a buried pagan church. All of which means that by the time Merrin finally exorcises Reagan McNeil in the 70s, he's apparently met Pazuzu on three separate occasions in three different countries over a period of five decades. No wonder he dies of exhaustion. Despite the derision which greeted Exorcist 2 quite rightly, and the subsequent problems surrounding Blatty's underrated Exorcist 3, about which more in the future, a fourth installment in the franchise became viable in the late 90s, after a 25th anniversary re-release of The Exorcist was a surprise number one box office hit here in the UK. Two years later, an expanded version of the film, featuring 11 minutes of new footage, earned more than $100 worldwide. And this is personally very important to me because I was one of the first people to see that new footage when we were hunting around for material for the documentary The Fear of God, which I made in 1998. Impressed by the success of the re-release of The Exorcist, Morgan Creek, who made Exorcist 3, commissioned a prequel screenplay by Terminator 2 writer William Wisher, to which Tom McLaughlin was reportedly attached as director. But when rewrites by best-selling author Caleb Carr attracted Manchurian candidate director John Frankenheimer, McLaughlin dropped out and the project drew in scale. Box office star Liam Neeson, yes, that Liam Neeson, signed on to play the young father Merrin, and shooting was scheduled to take place in the summer of 2002. But then in July, Frankenheimer died. Neeson left to fulfil other commitments, and the project was left once again in the lurch. At which point, Morgan Creek made the surprising decision to enlist maverick auteur Paul Schrader to save the day, helming his first studio feature in 20 years. It was a bold decision, and one they would live to regret. This is the spot where Lucifer fell.
2: There is something here, something evil.
1: (laughs) Raised as a strict Calvinist, Schrader had once famously described The Exorcist as the greatest metaphor in cinema, God and the devil in the same room arguing over the body of a little girl. The writer of dark classics like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, Schrader had recently drawn plaudits for directing the acclaimed independent features Affliction, for which James Coburn won a Supporting Actor Oscar, and Autofocus, the bizarre true story of the porn fueled life and violent death of TV star Bob Crane. For Schrader, Exorcist The Beginning offered the chance to command a $40 million movie while simultaneously exploring his own tortured vision of religious faith. sounded like a great idea. As Swedish actor Stellan Skarsgård, who was now cast as Father Merrin, told internet fans, "It's a big Hollywood, big budget movie, but it's directed by Paul Schrader, who's an interesting independent director." Skarsgård, then best known for the controversial art house hit *Breaking the Waves*, concluded, "I don't know whether Morgan Creek is being daring or stupid." It turned out the answer was stupid. He's coming for you. <laughs> When Schrader showed his first cut of the movie to Morgan Creek, all hell broke loose. According to press reports, executives were outraged by the lack of shocks and gore, prompting Schrader to speculate that they hadn't actually read the script. Things turned nastier still when a widely circulated private email attributed to Caleb Carr accused the director of Conjuring, quote, one of the most inept, amateur, utterly flat excuses for a film that has ever been concocted and declared that the movie would only be salvageable with another $10 in reshoots. As it turned out, the situation was even worse than Carr had predicted. Rather than attempting to salvage Schrader's disastrously dull movie, Morgan Creek did something quite extraordinary. They threw it away and decided to start again from scratch with another director, Rennie Harlin. Marion!
2: You better come with me.
1: According to Morgan Creek, Harlan was a safe pair of hands. This despite the fact that his CV included Cutthroat Island, one of the most expensive flops of all time. What could possibly go wrong? As it turns out, everything. Harlan's ham fisted horror show offers an hour and a half of tooth grinding boredom, followed by 20 minutes of all singing, all dancing, knees up stupidity, involving supernatural wrestling, CGI spider walking, and the kind of drop your popcorn demonic dialogue not heard since Showgirls. If only the exorcist spoof Repossessed had been half as funny. God,
0: he's not here today.
1: According to Harlan, he approached Exorcist The Beginning with the intention of mirroring the tone of William Friedkin's original so that, quote, if you watch this film and then watch The Exorcist, the original naturally follows as if it were a sequel. This is, of course utter balderdash. The only film you could sensibly watch after viewing Exorcist the Beginning is oversexed rug suckers from Mars, if only to remind yourself that in the world of really terrible movies, there's always something more terrible around the corner. Indeed, with its zany camera angles, crash bang computer graphics, bloodthirsty prowling hyenas and ludicrous flashbacks to Nazi massacres, Exorcist The Beginning starts to look like the work of someone who has tried and failed to get a production of Springtime for Hitler off the ground and has decided to take their revenge on Hollywood by making something much worse.
0: Come sit with us, Lancaster. I promise I won't fight. Joseph, run. (laughs) He's mine. Run. Run!
1: Amazingly, for a film so full of fantastically stupid spectacle, Exorcist the Beginning turns out to be mind-numbingly dull, thanks partly to the staggeringly incoherent script, Alexi Hawley rewriting Caleb Carr rewriting William Wisher, which introduces and then kills off characters whose entire raison d'etre remains a mystery. Amid the rubble of this catastrophe, Skarsgård cuts a genuinely miserable figure. He looks for all the world like a man who really wishes he was somewhere else. When Exorcist The Beginning came out in 2004 it became very fashionable for people to argue that the somewhere else he really wanted to be was in Paul Schrader's film which Morgan Creek had ditched and of which people were now speaking in hushed, reverential tones Indeed, when the respected movie historian David Thompson, author of the acclaimed Biographical Dictionary of Film, saw an unfinished rough cut of Schrader's version, he declared that it was beautiful, mysterious and full of anguish over lost faith. It seemed like the makings of a very valuable Schrader film. He went on to say that it didn't really seem like a continuation of the Exorcist franchise, and to that extent, Thompson admitted, one could foresee trouble. Schrader had made a film about spiritual isolation, a study in a crisis of faith. Drawing comparisons between the film's desert imagery and Paul Bowles's celebrated novel The Sheltering Sky, Thompson concluded that it would be a huge tragedy for this version to be lost. After which, everyone was super excited when Morgan Creek, desperate to regain some of the millions they'd poured into this franchise, announced that they would, after all, allow Schrader's cut to be released under a new name, Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, as a standalone film. And so, Schrader's film was released. And it was rubbish. Boring, ponderous, pretentious balderdash. The spirit of darkness, it's in you. Since Dominion, Schrader has gone on to direct the Canyons, which was awful, and Dog Eat Dog, which was worse, but he's recently redeemed himself with the brilliant First Reformed. As for any Harlan, since completing Exorcist the Beginning, he's made the Covenant, Cleaner, Twelve Rounds, Five Days of War, The Legend of Hercules, Skip Trace, and Legend of the Ancient Sword. No, me neither. Meanwhile, The Exorcist has gone on to spawn a TV series and a stage show, neither of which I've seen, but both of which have provoked surprisingly positive responses from people whom I trust. No matter how bad the spin-off movies may be, it seems there's still life in the franchise yet. So, there we are. Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. Two terrible movies for the price of one. But perhaps you disagree. Perhaps you think that Paul Schrader's film is in fact an underrated masterpiece. Or maybe you'd like to make an argument that Rennie Harlan is a misunderstood auteur. If so, please let me know. The easiest way to get in touch is to go to Twitter. The Twitter handle is at KermodeMovie and mark your comments with the hashtag KermodeOnFilm. I look forward to hearing some solid defences of two genuinely terrible films. Joseph. Run. <laughs> A few weeks ago, I was in Belfast at the Queen's Film Theatre, which is currently celebrating its 50th anniversary. I do an event every year at the QFT as part of the Cinemagic Festival. I choose a film that's suitable for a wide range of viewers, and I do a talk and an introduction. This year, I also did a talk about my new book, How Does It Feel?, which is a memoir of my time making music and being in bands. Since very early age, I've played music, although I've never managed to crack pop stardom. But along the way, I have met several other much more successful musicians. One of those is David Holmes. Now, David is a musician, a DJ and a composer. You may know his work from the films of Steven Soderbergh. He collaborated with Soderbergh, for example, on the Oceans movies. And recently, he did the series music for Killing Eve. He's also a talented film director. He made a lovely short in 2014 called I Am Here. And he's just finishing work on the forthcoming film, Normal People, directed by Lisa Barris-Tassar and Glenn Laban, the co-directors of Good Vibrations, on which David served as a producer, advisor and general spiritual guide. Now, Good Vibrations is one of my favourite films of recent years. It tells the story of the record label, which, under the charismatic Terry Hooley, launched The Undertones. So when I was in Belfast, I met up with David and I asked him to take me on a walking tour of some of the locations that had inspired Good Vibrations. Once upon a time in the city of Belfast,
0: there lived a boy named Terry. Do you want to come back to my mum and dad's? No. Do you want to go back to my mum and dad's? No. I want to open a record shop. We have every kind of beautiful record on our shelves. I'll put that record out. So what? You're making a record.
1: Uh, so I'm here in Belfast because I've come over to do the Cine Magic uh, Film Festival and I've met with David Holmes. David and I I think we first got in touch because you got in touch about good vibrations which is a film that I absolutely love to pieces. Is that right? Did you did you send me a That's te- right. We th- thought you would be
0: we thought you'd love it. Yeah. And we also knew you had a connection to Belfast. Yeah. So you would sort of
1: un- understand the kind of the city more than other people. <laughs> And for people who don't know, Good Vibrations is the story of a really, really famous record store and record label. Tell, explain what it is. Give us a bit of a a bit of background on Good Vibrations.
0: I mean, when I was a kid, we we had a few really good record shops. It wasn't just Good Vibrations. We also had Heroes and Villains, that was amazing, and Doogie Nights, which was great for like sort of jazz and and old sort of like uh, bebop and um, scuffle music and rockabilly. But Good Vibrations. I think stuck out because of where it was situated. It was pretty much maybe 500 meters from the Europa Hotel, which mm-hmm. at that time and still I suppose it still is in the Guinness Book of Records as being the most bombed hotel in Europe. Yeah. Funny enough, once they actually got all their, you know, bomb-proof kind of front, it hasn't actually been touched. Ironically, <laughs> 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 but they were they were just up the road for that, and it was it was upstairs from the the one and only sort of dried, sort of health food stores called Sassafras I remember going, what is that disgusting smell? And then you made your way up with all these kind of old sort of punk posters and stiff records posters and like yeah. all the, the, the classic sort of record labels of that day and in behind the desk was this very, very bright, one-eyed man Terry Hooley, Terry with an eye as he's known, um <laughs> Yeah, he was I just. I've heard that joke before. That's very good. <laughs> Terry was just—he wasn't a good businessman, to say the least—and continues not to be a, a good businessman. <laughs> but no, Terry was this kind of uh, amazing character who just never grew up. And he was like Peter Pan of of, of music and youth culture. And uh, he was a very, very influential figure in my career, in my life, as my life as a DJ, actually. Because when I was 14, 15, I started DJing. That was like 1983. Yeah. And you know, I hadn't got a pot to piss in. I didn't have a job or anything like that. I was just a kid. But I, one of the great benefits that I had was being the youngest of 10 children. Yeah. So I got to inherit a lot of records. But I used to come down to Terry's shop and harass him just hang out in the shop and look through these records that I could never afford Yeah, and I was a young mod at the time and I can't picture you as a mod
1: well yeah I seem seemed too laid
0: back for mod oh no I was just I mean to me it's all the same like rockabilly
1: mods yeah. punks it's just um, I have to say I saw you once you DJ'd Set in Cornwall, we we did a we did a screening of Seventy One. That's right, and uh, which I really love. And then we did a gig afterwards with my band, the Dodge Brothers. And then you did a DJ set, and you turned up with a, with a crate of vinyl, and you had vinyl copies of old rockabilly records that I thought nobody else had ever heard of. And the thing is that rockabilly isn't even your primary love. It's just the fact is that you, it was it was such a great thing because I was. I was listening to this thing that must be off CD, and it wasn't. You had vinyl copies of really, really knowing. Do you know what? I think growing up in the
0: eighties, one of the brilliant things about growing up in the eighties and being really into music, the sixties wasn't that far away, and the seventies wasn't that far away, yeah. and so much was yet to be discovered. Like electronic music was at its birth, you know, in many ways in popular music. So I was kind of like getting this incredible uh, education by going to certain clubs, but also by going to Good Vibrations. And when I was this young mod coming in, one day Terry pulled out this set of... You know those old kind of like wooden crates they used to keep like lemonade in? He pulled out one of those, two of those, completely packed with seven inches. I had Ride Your Pony by Lee Dorsey signed on Sioux Records. Uh, last Night by the Marquis, La 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 by the Blandells, El Watusi by Ray Barreto. I mean, I was in heaven. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And Terry gave me those records Wow. and said, pay me back one day when you have money. I actually ended up avoiding them for the next, <laughs> so, I actually ended up avoiding them for about 10 years because I had no money. But the minute I actually earned some money, and I'm very proud of this, I walked into the shop one day with my head held high and went, there's the money for the records. Oh. You know, this was the real deal. Mm. It wasn't just like, you know, it was just incredibly rare vinyl. And he just gave them to me, so I'll be forever grateful for that for sure. Wow.
1: So look, what I'd really like you to do is walk me down and show me. I know it's not there anymore, is it? Because it opened and closed and opened and closed and upped and downed. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been
0: open and closed um, so many times I've actually can't even tell you how many <laughs> good vibrations shops there's been I know it's definitely
1: closed now Terry's 70 on his next birthday yeah. he, came to, he came to a gig I, we did a gig here at the Black Box with the Dodge Brothers and they, somebody said oh Terry Hooley's at the door and I said you're kidding and they went yeah, yeah 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 do you want to meet him and I said yeah they said well you've got to be on in half an hour and I said yeah that's fine that's time enough they went no if Terry Hooley's gonna to come to me, you, need to have at least an hour clear. I he, was he was he was he was great. He was exactly yeah. as I would have expected him to yeah, be. I was yeah, a bit yeah. overawed because you know, because I'm such a fan of the film and I've you know, I've, I've seen the film so often, I love it so much. It was kinda of weird to actually be with Terry Hooley. Yeah, yeah. Oh no,
0: he's uh he's unbelievable. He's gonna sort of outlive everybody. Yeah. I don't know how, but he will.
1: So will you take me to Yeah,
0: let's do it. Let's cool. go let's go there. Right. All right.
2: soon.
0: I'll be too late. What you say your name was? Fergal. Fergal Shark. That's
2: the best thing I ever recorded. Everybody
1: has to hear them. Everybody. Okay, so we've just walked down the street from the Europa, yeah. which is still a weird-looking hotel. It is. It's kind of like, a taxi driver wants to describe Belfast
0: perfectly to me. He says, Belfast is back to front. <laughs> it's a bit like the uh, the exterior of the Europa Hotel. <laughs> and um, So where are we now? Where, which street are we on? This is Great
1: Victoria Street, okay. and we're kind of sort of standing out where good vibrations used to be. So now, in front of us, there is like an empty lot. There's a, there's a, a whole bunch of uh, clapboard put up in which people have done, actually, rather a nice mural. That looks like Alien there. So... This is where the shop used to be. Yeah, so I would I, I would get on a bus
0: from the Armour Road in East South Belfast, which would have taken me through the University area, and then down Botanic Avenue. At the corner of Botanic Avenue, you had Doogie Nights. Um, that's such a great
1: name for a record show Yeah, he about. was a, he was a jazz guy.
0: <laughs> so uh, he, he and that's when you got every old vinyl, and you went into the basement. He had they had a film soundtrack section and stuff. But like I was, piss poor back then, so. It is quite frustrating when you're that young and like you want all these records, but you can't get them. Yeah,
1: but there is something about going to those places and browsing through them. I, mean, I there was a record shop where I live called Loppy Logs, and I would literally go there, and it was almost like you were that f- like you were fondling the
0: albums. Yeah, I mean it was kind of like you were stepping into another world, yeah. and another world that you just it was especially in Belfast it was just an escape. Didn't realise it at the time. A lot of stuff happened in Belfast that people say you know, there's a phrase like it was like water of a duck's back. It wasn't like water of a duck's back. It wasn't until the troubles actually stopped that you actually realized that a lot of people have been sort of psychologically damaged by it. But all those sort of like escape routes, record shops, clubs, you know, just music, film, video stores, that was my escape from what was really going on in the streets. But on up Shaspi Square, you had another brilliant record shop called Heroes and Villains. I learned so much from these three record shops. So and they're all literally within within stone's throw of each other. Yeah, yeah. And then, good vibrations. And, uh, you know, Terry with an eye would sit here and, you know, wax lyrical and talk shite and, and also preach, you know, just pure
1: inspiration. I mean, seriously, now we're on a street corner and it's an empty lot. Do you still feel any kind of a, a, a affectionate attachment to the place, even though the building isn't there anymore? No, I just have a lot of happy memories.
0: Like, I'll never forget the day that Terry Hooley gave me a couple of boxes of pristine seven-inch records, yeah. some signed by the actual artists, like Lee Dorsey, Roger Pony, yeah. holy shit. You know, I knew that record. And then just as a 15-year-old lad who hadn't got a pot to piss in, suddenly I had the best record collection in Belfast.
1: I wish the shop was still here because I wish I could walk into it, but I did feel that when I was watching the film that I was I was kind of walking into it. When you watch Good Vibrations now, does it? how well does it capture what that place felt like? I thought... That Glenn and Lisa did an incredible job. um, Their
0: direction. I mean, that movie was made for very little money. When you're making a movie like that, you realise that it might have might as well have been the 18th century. (laughs) Belfast then and Belfast now are completely completely, different. Completely different. So it was an incredible achievement, and I think they really got that authenticity down to a T. So, and Richard Dormer's performance as Terry is like sort sort of second to none.
1: OK, now, look, to walk here, we walked past a pub that you pointed out. Yeah, the crime
0: pub. Oh, That's where Terry and, and, and Co would have just went and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, for, 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 for refreshments.
1: Well, can I take you there and buy you a pint? Yeah, let's do it. All
0: right, cool. What well,
1: is right with
0: you It was all going to be
1: absolutely fine. Trust me. <laughs> David, cheers. Cheers, Mark. So the name of this pub is the. It's the Crime Bar. And what's the history of it? It's been around forever. Um, it was a much better <coughs> bar when you
0: could smoke in it. <laughs> As you can see, these sort of brass kind of fixtures were yeah. actually just a. Both for striking your matches. For striking on. your matches. Uh, but you don't smoke anymore. Mm-hmm. No, I'm 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 sort of chained to actually. A vape, but there's actually no nicotine in this whatsoever, okay. which is great, and it just shows you how psychological smoking actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's just a fucking mind trick and uh, a complete waste of time. Because let's face it, at least alcohol and marijuana sort of <laughs> at least you feel something. <laughs> um, smoking just kills you. But um, yeah, there's a, a very sort of famously uh, the odd man out um was filmed here but i don't think they actually filmed in the bar i think they made a set pretty much you know taking in every detail yeah um so which is you know i'm sure you're a big fan of that film, are you? Hey, hey. but it's just it's one of the last sort of standing bars in belfast i suppose that has real history you know um I've drank here lots over the years but I mean I th- these have been my favourite places it, it, when I run a club in Belfast I was running a club in an old uh, working man's club called the Maple Leaf and it was you walked in and you were just waiting on the meat raffle you know it, but these places have so much more atmosphere yeah uh, tons of character they're incredibly cinematic and Unfortunately Belfast has fallen victim of a lot of these places being sort of ripped down and really bad architecture being put up in its place and these kind of style bars and, you know, glitzy kind of just nonsense that really have no soul. So um, the crown will always be here. Like The crown is like a, like a, a, a Belfast institution, you know, it's, it's not going anywhere. Thank God. So this is where Terry
1: would have come to drink. This is where Terry Hooley would have... Oh, yeah,
0: I'd, I'd say many a plan were was hatched in uh, these booths. I mean, it was a hop and a skip from just down the road. I mean, as you can see, you could probably fit about seven or eight people in here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could, you, you could get up to all sorts of nonsense in these booths. <laughs> and I'm sure
1: Terry did. I mean, this would have been his local for sure. So, uh, look, let, let me ask you about your career, right? You're just finishing making another... Film with the directors, with the co directors of Good Vibrations, yeah? Well, uh, Glenn Labour and Lisa Barstasa, they're a husband and wife team, they directed
0: Good Vibrations. They're my best friends, and we started Candor Blinks, our our film company, just so we could do it ourselves. Very sort of punk rock attitude, actually, just kind of let's stop waiting around, no one's going to start giving us work, let's create our own work, let's create our own sort of fantasies and, 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 and try and make it happen. We, we have an incredible infrastructure in Northern Ireland. Uh, Northern Ireland screen are just the most brilliant people. They have supported us from day one. When we started Canderblinks, we literally said, right, let's make a short film. I'll produce, you're going to direct, you can write it. Lisa went and wrote it that weekend. It was called The 18th Electricity Plan. Sort of um, quite sort of avant-garde strange sort of world and it, that actually ended up doing really well but i remember foaming up the n.i screen you know they give us 25 grand within a couple of weeks to, to make a short and then we went from there to good vibrations and now we have just um glenn and lisa have just completed our next feature um, which is called normal people written by a guy uh, called owen mccafferty very well respected sort of playwright this is his first feature film and uh, it's just a, a, just a beautiful script. It came together in the most bizarre way. And it stars? It stars Leslie Manville um, and Liam Neeson. And uh, it's a, actually just a phenomenal story. I just think this movie is going to touch... I don't want to give too much away, no, no, but no. I think this movie is going to touch so many people. And uh, it's, it's, it's essentially a love story. And it's ultimately about people who are very much in love in the, f- not in the final furlong of their life, but you know their early sixties, and it's a really interesting project because people who are very very close to me are connected to it, yeah, yeah. and that's probably never going to happen again. You know, I've known Owen McCaffrey since I was ten. His father and my father were big friends. Peggy, his wife, uh, who the movie is essentially about, it's Owen and Peggy, and an experience that they that, that they shared. And then I've got my best friends, Glenn and Lisa, sort of directing it. You know, it's just, it's a wonderful experience to sort of work on something so important and so beautiful. But with people throughout my entire history, it's class. It's like,
1: and we're we're all still friends. (laughs) You did live out in LA, but you came back, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you you love it here or because it's home or...
0: No, I mean, I I had an opportunity to go to Los Angeles and do a film um, for Steven Soderbergh called Haywire, and, you know, it paid quite well, and I just thought, you know what, I've made a bit of cash, why don't we go, our daughter was seven at the time, why don't we put her in the school, we went to Laurel Canyon, and, um, you know, we were living the dream, living in Laurel Canyon, you know, (laughs) going to the country store where Jim Morrison, his house was right next to it, and... And then you sort of realize it is in the 60s and you spend half your day spent in traffic. But we had a wonderful experience, but I didn't work much because Hollywood was really changing. I mean, you just have to go on iTunes to realize how appalling that industry has become. They're making movies. That's why people like Netflix are starting to take over because Hollywood is so focused on these... It's almost like Disney theme park rides, you know, 3D. A lot of the movies that I want to make aren't being made there, and if they are being made there, they're being made by directors who have their guy or girl doing the score. So we were making good vibrations, and my wife just said, like, would you live here if it wasn't sunny? And I was like, fuck no. (laughs) And at that moment, we said, well, I miss Europe. You know, we have a we have a little apartment in Paris. I miss going to our apartment in Paris. So it wasn't Belfast per se that I missed. I missed Europe. I consider myself a European. Yeah. That's why I come back, and I never regretted it because, thankfully, in Europe and in Britain, there is still much more, um, the ratio of great cinema, sort of definitely kind of outweighs the ratio of rubbish, yeah. which. In America, it's, <laughs> the the, other way it's the other way around. <laughs> and um, and I can live here quite freely and quite cheaply, and I can do I can work, you know, for little money, if I just think it's a great project. So, it's you know it was never about the money, but when you're living somewhere that's costing you so much, you need to be making the money that's going to sort of help you get through that. And you know, I nibbled on Satan's scrotum once and,
1: you know... Can you say what that was for? No, <laughs> I'm not. Okay, hang on. But just, let's just say... No, just mouth it to me. I'll
0: tell you when he turns the
1: microphone off. Oh, okay, fine. fine but right, you, ma- you, you won't look at me in the same way ever again. Listen, last thing. So, all these soundtracks stuff that you're doing, I think Evie's doing absolutely brilliantly. You've just given me, on vinyl and on CD, the Unloved Heartbreak, and I was offended that you asked me if I had a vinyl player. I I thought know. you would know me better than that. I was you? just making sure. I mean
0: of course you
1: have a vinyl there. Yeah. Oh, look at your hair thank you but the one thing I want to say is the movie you don't talk about enough is that short film that you made that oh, I am here. lovely short film which I thought was so haunting thank that you. we did the premiere of at the ICA wasn't that's it? right Yeah. you directed that and it oh, yeah. was a very personal project can people see that anywhere is it on iTunes or anything Or
0: it's on YouTube Just type in I Am Here by David Holmes and it'll bring you straight there. I
1: thought that was such a lovely piece of work David. Thank you you so much.
0: Very, very personal and really touching. Yeah, I Am Here was made, uh, you know, after the death of my brother. Mm. And my sister Maggie, who was a caution designer on that, has now passed away. So it's kind of, um, I I come from a very, very tight family. And we're we're, we're all really close, amazing parents. And um, they, they, they just brought us up really well to sort of love each other and look out for each other and stuff but when you lose a couple of them, you know, I couldn't think of a better way of honouring them through actually music and, and film. So.
1: Well I said, I hope people go and find it on YouTube and uh, it's, uh, thank you for taking me to where the shop used to be, which is great. I really, really look forward to normal people. Normal people. Which will hopefully we'll see next year. Oh
0: yeah, for sure.
1: You, and you will on, on to you will be the first person to see this movie. Thank you. I look forward to that enormously. And obviously, now we're gonna turn the tape record off so that you can tell me when you nibble on Satan's wrong Okay. <laughs> Good vibrations isn't a
0: record. Shop. It's not a label.
1: Now, for the final part of this episode of Kermode on Film, we're revisiting an interview I did with Desiree Akhavan a couple of months ago at my regular show at the BFI South Bank, Mark Kermode Live in 3D. Desiree Ackerman is the writer and director of Appropriate Behaviour and the Miseducation of Cameron Post. And her new series, The Bisexual, is currently available on the streaming service All Four. She came on the show to talk about her work in film and television. And just a word of explanation. At the MK3D shows, I sit on stage and to my right is a table at which sits Nick. Nick is in charge of all the audio visual elements. He makes sure that the right clips and the right stills come up at the right time. And it's great to have him on stage because it means that we can interact during the show and respond to whatever happens. And believe me, when Desiree Akavan comes on, anything can happen. I'm just thrilled that you're here. Um, now we're going to talk about a new television project which you have, which hasn't uh, opened yet. But first, can we let's start with the uh, Education of Cameron Post, based on a novel which I confess I hadn't read. And the thing-
2: surprise, surprise, Is Mark it- Kermode had not read the uh, lesbian coming-of-age young adult novel that did not so well in America. So shuckers. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So- Yeah, I
1: kind of walked into that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, So, for those who don't know, can you say what the film is about? Because one of the things that's interesting about The Miseducation of Cameron Post, as I was trying to say in my review, is it's perhaps not the film that people expect when they say... So, would you describe... uh, Many of you will have seen it, but for those who haven't, describe what the film is about.
2: Uh, The Miseducation of Cameron Post is a... Oh, now I'm like How do it I avoid hard isn't it and, yeah, yeah I want to avoid the pitfall So I'll tell you what, it, like, what it's about And then I'll tell you Why it doesn't fit into yeah. That cliche But I would say It's like a, a coming of age story About a girl who's put into A gay conversion therapy center After she's caught Having sex with the homecoming queen
1: Yeah
2: uh, In the back of her boyfriend's car And it sounds And I feel like It was sold in a lot of ways As like this very Like take your medicine Kind of uh, Drama like gay drama, like feel bad for us, we're gay and young and American and Christian. But actually it's more of like a John Hughes coming of age, very sexy coming of age story that has a lot of humor. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I think it's easy to to look at the images and think that it's, it's uh, just for gay people. But I actually I, I wanted to make a story that Made me feel like that was about being a teen. And I always felt like being a teen, no matter who you were gay, straight, black, white, whatever you felt diseased in some way and like you needed to exercise yourself of anything that made you unlike the mainstream. Yeah. And uh, that's how I felt watching The Breakfast Club. That's why I liked it so much, even though everybody in it was white and straight. (laughs) And I'm not. But I loved that film, and that's all I had to go on. And I always wanted John Hughes films that, you know, were made now. I feel like teen films really talk down to the experience of teens. Mm -hmm. And also John Hughes films that were, like, a little less rapey.
1: I am... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, it is really interesting. If you go back and you watch the Breakfast Club, anyway, sorry. So, um, I
2: Breakfast Club. Oh my God! We don't have to go off on this too far, but like sixteen candles oh, yeah, when yeah, she wakes yeah, yeah. up and she's like, "Did we have sex?" I know, I and he's know, like, I know. "Yeah, we did." And she's like, "Great."
1: <laughs> yeah, I did a I did a program with Nick he and I made it together. It was a big success. Secrets of Cinema.
2: I believe in you, Nick. You can talk if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I really like want to know what's going on with Nick. And no offense, Mark, but I like. Can... Whatever. <laughs> we'll talk later.
1: <laughs> I have his family. It's very simple. You're
2: like I have the microphone. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: So anyway, so we uh, so we did this thing, and one of the the the, uh, the episodes was about coming of age movies, and. I saw Miseducation of Cameron Post after the programme had gone out, and it was, watching it, I just thought this would have been perfect. Oh, this would thanks. have been absolutely perfect because there are so many tropes that I love from coming of age films the way in which you use music, that fabulous scene in which they're dancing to Fallen Blondes, I mean, and the relationship between the three central characters. That, and there is a, a fabulous moment in it in which somebody says, Maybe feeling disgusted with yourself is part of—I'm misquoting it, but if somebody says, "Oh, you." Yeah, maybe ma- you're
2: supposed to feel disgusted with yourself when you're when a, you're a teenager. teenager,
1: and that seemed to me to be absolutely kind of at the, at the core of it. And I know what you mean about other people sort of maybe thinking it's it's an issue movie. Although we should say that it is a film about gay conversion therapy, and in the middle of the of the shoot, the election happened.
2: Yeah, and um, gay conversion therapy still exists. It exists in this country, it exists in the United States. It's more prevalent in the states, and just recently legislation was passed to make it illegal in this country. Uh, like in the past month, yeah. so very recently. Um, it's only illegal in 14 states in the United States, and um, it's for, uh, illegal for minors. But because it's freedom of speech, everyone can argue against it. And actually, what's amazing and so American is that recently lawyers come up with the idea of arguing that it's consumer fraud. And on that basis, they've been able to make it illegal in some states. <laughs> I live here now, so I get to roll my eyes.
1: Mike Pence still thinks it's...
2: So Mike Pence is uh, a supporter of gay conversion therapy, and his funding money comes from, like, family-first organizations that actively uh, advocate for gay conversion therapy.
1: Astonishing. Let's see uh, a clip from Miseducation of Cameron Pose, which has fantastic performances by uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, yeah. who's, who's, like, how old is she? She's, like, 21
2: well, or something, and she's made... 60. Sixty films.
1: Of which they're pretty much all good.
2: Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to don't, don't quote me. I just realized okay, no, I was no, like no. I maybe tweeted at. Don't tweet it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, when we shot, she was 19.
1: Yeah, and we're we also going to see in this scene Jennifer Ely, who is just, I think, really brilliant S- because.
2: The best actress. I mean, one of Maxine Peake is in two. I, I was going to say that I've ever worked with her. I'm like, no, 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 I work with Maxine Peake. We're going to see she's you and Maxine Peake in a bit anyway, so we <laughs> But we well- Jennifer Ely's amazing, and she's, I learned so much working with Jennifer. Okay, there we go. I'm Dr. Lydia Marsh, I'm the director of God's Promise. Hi, it's a pleasure to meet you. I know the adjustment can be difficult at first, but I have every faith you'll find yourself at home here soon. In the meantime, please don't hesitate to ask if you need anything. Thank you. You
0: should consider yourself amongst family, Cameron. You can call me Cam.
2: Cameron's already a masculine name. To abbreviate it to something even less feminine only exacerbates your gender confusion.
1: Right. One of the things that you see from that is that there is a lot of laughter in the film, and that was one of the things I like most about it, is despite the, you know, the, the dark subject matter, it is very funny. It's very affectionate, and, it's, uh, and obviously you, know, you have a background in comedy and appropriate behaviour and, and that stuff. Um, so you, you mentioned how fabulous those performers are, but you also mentioned uh, Maxine Peake, which leads you rather brilliantly into what you're doing or you've just done now. Tell us all about The Bisexual.
2: Yeah, so I, I made a television series called The Bisexual. It's going to premiere on Channel 4 on October 10th. And it uh, is about a, a lesbian in her 30s who comes out as bisexual and starts dating men for the first time in her life. And um, her, she shares a business with her ex that she just splits up with in the first episode. And her ex is Maxine Peake. And I play the girl. Yeah, do I need to keep going? No, <laughs> in a way, that
1: brilliantly sets it. Do you want to see the clip? Yes, and we can talk about the Okay, clip. so
2: here's the clip. Because we'll just... they share a business together. That's to set up the clip. And this so is... They're personally splitting up. Yes. Exactly. Okay, here we go. Absolutely nothing is changing. We are just taking a break from being partners. Yeah, we are still business partners. Definitely. So while we're not feeling so compatible romantically, we're feeling incredibly compatible professionally. But she's not going any questions. <clears throat> Mommy and Daddy love you very much. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Is this thing on? Guys, look what I found. Our love fuels the work. Right. I'm done here.
1: <laughs> so going down very well in the room. Have you had to test screen? Because it's comedy, it's, it's very... Yeah. Have you had to do test screenings and sit with audiences? If
2: we had the budget for a test screening, I'd have an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't do test screenings, but purely because we've been chasing our deal with this. I mean, we've been running so fast and um, modestly in every respect. So, no. I can't imagine being a part of something that like tested, like, do you like it? I think everything I've made has been so... Urgent and cheap, that we're just... (laughs) Urgent and cheap. Urgent Mm. is maybe like a a nice word for I have no money, but I actually don't think a lot about my audience, which is, I guess, selfish, but I wanna make something entertaining and fun and like candy, but I I have very tacky taste.
1: So are you, if you say you're not worried about the audience, you didn't have the audience in mind, what are your uh, ambitions for the bisexual? Do you worry about how it's gonna be reviewed, how it's gonna be seen? Do you worry about audience figures? Wow. I mean, if, if I was in your position, I would be in total meltdown. <laughs>
2: Thanks for that. No, it's fine. Just, well, you know.
1: And Nick s- agrees, don't you, Nick? I do. You see, he well, Okay, see? all right, all
2: right. You know what, Nick? Let's talk. <laughs> look, think of all the guests you've had. Yeah. Think about how many of them were brown. Think about how many of them were women and directors, not actors. Yeah. It's so rare that I get to tell my story and that people pay attention to me and no one else, and not because they want to fuck me, which no one ever does. But if, like, like let's, like, I, like, I'm so blessed and, fucking jazz that I get to tell my stories. I don't care what anyone else wants. I just want to tell them on my terms. And if I acquiesce to what other what's in the mainstream and what other people like, I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. And if yeah. I were looking over my shoulder, I wouldn't have gone this far. So if people hate it, then I'm like, fine, I'll, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. But like, if I was looking over my shoulder, then, the work would change yeah. and it wouldn't just be for me and it's only for me because i grew up on film and television and none of it to, spoke to me personally but i was like very lonely as a child i really related to what terrence said about feeling like terrorized growing up but losing yourself in movies and being like maybe there's a world that's like that and then i grew up and i was like no there's not a world like that <laughs> and i was like i'd like to make films that reflect life as i see it and as long as i'm able to pay my rent i'm a success and like do this work, yeah, yeah. but I think when you start to measure like what's the award I should win or what's the amount of viewers I should get, then you get in this weird dick measuring contest, and you're never gonna want to leave your bed in the morning. And that's already very hard for me. So like I wanna, I I just wanna like shoot my load and get out. God, these are all so sexual. I'm so sorry. Like, I, I've had a rough day, so I took a couple of drinks before this started. <laughs> and I think it worked. I think we can all agree Nick and I are having something going on here. <laughs> it's the
1: alcohol. Out of interest, what are your favorite films? What are the ones that do mean the most to you?
2: Fat Girl by Catherine Brilla. That's, like, a weird one that people well, hate. Well, so it was called over here. Amasa, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like, marmite but I really loved it. And when I saw it, I was like, yeah. Uh, Young Frankenstein. Yeah.
1: Random. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the putting on the Ritz sequence from Young Frankenstein is literally one of the, the funniest things ever done by anybody. <laughs> no, I don't know. I watch it over. I watch Young Frankenstein at least once every year. Free
2: Amigos.
1: Yeah, very good. Like,
2: really slapsticky, ridiculous. I mean, these are things that I grew up with with my immigrant dad. You know, And there are like so few things you can watch with your immigrant dad. I don't know if you have an immigrant dad, but if anyone has an immigrant dad, it's like Mr. Bean and Mel Brooks. Mr. Bean is everywhere. Doesn't matter what country you're from. Um, I think that when I got a little older and I saw Noah Baumbach films, like when I saw Margot at the wedding, I was like, I can do that. Okay. And I got really excited. But then also Vagabond and Cleo in the Afternoon. Yeah. Those were two films that, that really enabled me.
1: Um, are we going to see more feature films from you?
2: Yes, yeah. Um, I genuinely don't know what I'm doing next. My, my collaborators are here, my, my co-writer Cecilia and our EP Olivier. And we worked so hard for so many years to make that TV show and that movie. And it all got greenlit in the same week and just has... I finish mixing the show tomorrow. I'm still making it. Okay. So I, I guess I'm very much at a moment in time where I'm like, what? Because also, films aren't being monetized in quite the same way they were being monetized yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. uh, which just means like, making films without a trust fund is just like, a very expensive hobby or for huh. anybody. You know, it just, it's, it's not the same industry as it was before. So I guess I wonder, like, how do you sustain yourself? And tell the stories you want to tell without compromising or think, without thinking about the audience
1: I have nothing but admiration for the way you're going about it I Thanks. think it's, it's fabulous, you've been a brilliant guest if a little bit scary <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen the fabulous Desiree Ackerman Thank you, <laughs> Thank you so much Thank you Well, that's it. Thanks for downloading and listening to this episode of the Kermode on Film podcast. As I said, please do get in touch with any feedback or questions. Best way is through Twitter, at KermodeMovie, and mark your comment, hashtag KermodeOnFilm. Coming up on next week's instalment, it's the return of Jack Howard, in which he and I will be having a full and frank set-to about the merits, or otherwise, of the Dark Knight trilogy. See you then. Rock and roll's been going downhill
2: ever since Buddy Holly died.